This is a Rooster Teeth production. Have you ever thought about what happens to the hikers who don't survive the harrowing climb up Mount Everest? Welcome to 30 Morbid Minutes. This is the podcast where we take an episodic deep dive into topics, places, people, and things of a morbid, macabre, dark, and downright grisly nature. (laughs) I'm Elise Willems. And I'm Jessica Vasami. And Jessica, this episode is pretty dark, so fair warning on that. I know. I'm ready for it, I think. And hopefully we treat this as respectfully as possible. Absolutely. And that is is our intention, and uh, I hope we, we manage that as a lot of this is still going on right now as we speak. Yeah, in some current event news, as we record this episode, Jost Kobusch, he's this young German mountain climber, is alone on Mount Everest attempting his first solo ascent ever. And solo ascent means he has no guides with him, which people usually have guides alongside them. And Jess, here's the big kicker too. He also has no oxygen. Yeah, no, I can't do that. I had trouble when I was in Colorado breathing And I wasn't even uh, on a mountain. I was just, you know, at just the base level being in Colorado. Just elevation there. Yeah, I had to go to like the store and get one of those little oxygen tanks that you just breathe out. I don't know if you've seen those little tanks, but I was doing that the entire time. I was getting dizzy. It was awful. There's no way I could do this. Is it Colorado or Denver that's the high city? Or Denver is the high city? Colorado is not a city. Yeah, I was like, Colorado is the state, Denver is the capital. Yeah, for for our listeners, I'm Canadian. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sometimes I get my cities and states confused. Um, and so he has no oxygen, and he's doing this climb during the worst season to do it, in the dead of winter. He's been described as the loneliest alpine climber in the world, and as we record this episode and Jost is attempting this climb, there is only one tent at base camp right now, his, which is so freaky. Because we've we've researched this episode and we've kind of looked into what is required to climb Mount Everest. And not many people do it like this, right, Jess? Yeah, they don't. And I'm curious as to why he is doing it this way. Yeah, he's he's a young guy. He does seem like this is his passion and bread and butter. And I don't want to psychoanalyze here. I think like us, most average people might question why Joseph is pushing the boundaries of death in attempting to scale Everest under such dire circumstances. Uh, mm-hmm. When the mountain is treacherous in even the best of conditions. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the questions we're going to try to answer or come to some kind of, you know, thought about today as we talk about Everest and some of the perils of climbing one of the world's quote unquote eight thousanders and how there's a lot of risk to this. And we see this in the bodies of those who lost their lives on the mountain that are still there and serve as a dark reminder of the risk that people take in this extreme sport. But first, let's get into some of the background on the mountain itself. Take it away, Jess. Mount Everest is Earth's highest mountain above sea level, located in the, apologies if I butcher this, um, Mahalinger Himal sub-range of the Himalayans on the border of China and Nepal. It's over 60 million years old and was formed when India's continental plate crashed into Asia. India's plate pushed under Asia and raised a huge mass of land upwards. And even though it is in this part of the world, of course, the mountain is named after a Welshman. 
who mm-hmm. was the surveyor general of India. And here's kind of the, the weird kicker of all of this. His name was Sir George Everest. <laughs> Not Everest. So we've been pronouncing his name wrong this entire time. Sorry, Sir George. I, <laughs> sorry, Sir George. <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> Even though I do think like Everest kind of sounds cooler than Everest. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, because Everest sounds like, will we ever make it up? It's, it's an it Everest climb. It does. It does. Um, the cost of climbing Mount Everest ranges from anywhere between $30,000 to $100,000, depending on your source. That's crazy. I know. That's I, I didn't know that it cost money to climb the mountain. I thought you just kind of show up, you just climb it, and you, you just climb it. So news to me. But this includes a fee of $11,000 paid to the Nepali government and the cost of supplies, including oxygen for the climber and their Sherpas. I hope there's no controversy there, but I I like that there's a fee paid to the Nepali government because there are people coming into this Mm -hmm. land who are not from there and probably Mm -hmm. put a strain on local resources and stuff. Yep. It makes sense. Yeah. And you made a note there, Jess, that part of this cost goes to paying the Sherpas that help people come up the mountain. Mm -hmm. The word Sherpa is often used and thought to refer to mountain guides, but it's actually the name of the indigenous ethnic groups living in the valleys of the Himalayas. And the Sherpa, they're high altitude residents, like you were talking about being in Colorado before. Mm -hmm. Their high altitude and constant exposure to low oxygen makes them naturally adept at scaling Everest. Yeah. So they just, that's incredible. Yeah. They've built up this tolerance. And mm-hmm. most climbers that go up Everest are c- so reliant on the Sherpas as being their local guides. And it, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but the Sherpa themselves have kind of been reduced to, oh, they're just these people that help foreigners go up Mount Everest. But they actually have their own really rich lifestyle with farming and herding and trade. That's so much more beyond that. And they do get taken advantage of a lot. And we'll talk about that more in the episode. I want to know how many times some of these Sherpas have actually climbed up and down Mount Everest. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, how many times of the year they're doing it. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. The Himalayan database has recorded 10,000, a little over 10,000 successful summits of Everest as of January 2021. So some people make multiple trips. So it shakes out to be about, Almost 6,000 individuals, multiple trips. I can't even imagine doing this once. I can't imagine scaling a lesser mountain once in my lifetime. I can't really climb a hill without <laughs> you know, I, without my body breaking and me yeah. having an asthma attack. So this well, is hard for me to understand. <laughs> I think it's like also if you're a wealthy adrenaline junkie and you've got this kind of money that you can put out, some people save up forever to do this trip, to do this climb. That's so much money to do that more than once, too. It is. I was not born this way, where I just love adrenaline and feel the need to climb these mountains. But I understand why we as humans, we're just curious creatures and we just, we need to figure it out. We're just going to, we see, we see a tall peak up there. I'm going to climb it. (laughs) Yeah. Some people just like, they see the mountain and they're like, yep. I think for other people too, it's once you get that taste Nothing, nothing compares to it. You know, you hear these stories of astronauts that come back from the International Space Station or from space travel and they get that perspective where they look back on Earth and they're like, huh, what now? It's like the hobbits coming back to the Shire. And there's that guy that there's that guy that's got that giant pumpkin, you know, the hobbit that comes in and he's got the giant pumpkin. And it's like everybody's everybody's clapping at this giant pumpkin, but they defeated Sauron. (laughs) 
Yes. <laughs> you know, how do you come back from that? <laughs> I don't know. And when you're talking about the, you know, the astronauts looking down at Earth, a lot of them also start to contemplate what is God and yeah. is God real, which I wonder, you know, I actually do wonder if they, people, when they climb up there, just like, what are they thinking when you reach the top? When you are at the top, when you're at the summit and you're looking over Earth, what are you thinking in that moment? You know? Yeah. Well, I'm going to say God was that giant pumpkin that Hobbit was carrying. <laughs> <laughs> that tracks. That tracks. So some people do this more than once. Wow. How long does it take to climb the mountain if they are doubling down and doing this multiple times? Um, yeah, you'd think like, oh, maybe like, you know, a couple of days. It takes about two months. And <sighs> that's due to the time needed to stop at various encampments so you can adjust to the altitude changes, which is obviously smart and good for you. So and this is where we've been, you know, kind of joking a lot, but sadly. The, the dark side of this episode is that not everyone makes it back down from Everest uh, is the reality and is the reality that these these hikers, these risk takers have to assume when they are attempting to summit the mountain because there is a very, very high risk of fatality. Right, Jess? And, yeah. And there's actually a, a part of the mountain that is predisposed to these fatalities happening, right? Yeah, most of the fatalities occur in what they call the death zone, which is a point beyond extreme altitudes at which there's a severe lack of oxygen and climbers run the highest risks, like loss of vital body functions or altitude sickness. And the summit actually only has 66% oxygen. So when you were talking about Jost going up there, you know, without any oxygen, I just... I guess some some bodies are just different and can do it. Like I know that mine can't. Actually, I'm very curious at what, as what some of the training is to do this because yeah, your body does need to acc acclimate. Like if Joe's is going up there without any oxygen, like you had to have some training for this. I would oh, assume for sure. You're I'm sure you're climbing other smaller peaks yeah. constantly and yeah, doing doing breath training and stuff like that. But mm -hmm. again, I don't know how you can replicate the real thing exactly at least yeah. we have science now people did this a hundred years ago the sherpas were doing this long before without oxygen so mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. and yeah and and even if you're making it up there it can take days sometimes weeks to acclimatize in this this death zone um and your brain and lungs like you mentioned jess they can become starved for oxygen because they're not being properly subsidized and so not only is this taking a big toll on your body, you know, you have a higher risk of maybe a stroke or a heart attack if you're not in the best health, but also your judgment can become impaired. So when you're, you're in this kind of crisis situation, if you really think about it and you're not thinking clearly because you're not getting enough oxygen to your vital organs. Yeah. Jeremy Windsor, a doctor who climbed Everest in 2007 told Business Insider that scaling the mountain can feel like running on a treadmill while breathing through a straw. You basically just feel like your body is falling apart. Yeah. And as you are struggling, you can't sleep. Your muscle literally starts to waste away. And the snow glare all around you, you I, this is something that I did not think about at all. But it's so bright up there and it's all reflective. And the snow glare can cause blindness and vision loss you risk severe frostbite up there. Uh, I'm from Canada and I can tell you I've been in some pretty cold temperatures, but this is a whole other level, you know, and, and you have all these different factors going on 
that are limiting a, a climber's ability to function, and they're putting themselves in a position where the potential for accidents is very, very high. Yeah, and sometimes during high-trafficked fair weather months, the peak of Everest can become so jammed with people that they end up spending too much time in the, de in the death zone, and this unplanned time can contribute to fatalities. Which is so fascinating to me because I never thought that there would be some kind of like queue on Everest. No, me neither. And I was looking at pictures actually. And yes, it is literally like a traffic jam of just people climbing the mountain. I always think it's just going to be just, oh, this is a giant mountain. I didn't know how many people are doing this. And apparently there's tons. Yeah. And I wonder if, because you have to apply for these permits, right? Mm -hmm. And so I wonder if, you know, it's kind of a first come first serve situation, or if your permit says, you know, you're at this place in line that once you get to this zone, you can continue going up at this time sort of thing. That might be deep for us to figure out right now. But if anyone listening knows, let us know because I'm so curious. Yeah. Especially when, because that's an interesting, I just wonder, I'm like, but they know that they're in the death zone. So like, you can't keep them there for too long. I mean, I yeah. don't know. They know what they're getting into, but ugh. And the clock is ticking. Exactly. And people getting stuck in this death zone and then their, their climb not going as planned and these contingencies not working out, that happens more often than, you know, we would hope that it does. And it can very often lead to a fatality. There are over 200 known bodies on Everest. And the specifically morbid thing about Everest is that the majority of the dead are still on the mountain. Two thirds, at least, of these missing and fallen hikers also have never been found. You know, with some of these fatalities, I always just thought that they were from falling off the mountain, but the biggest cause of death on Mount Everest are actually avalanches, which they're just merely unpredictable. So nobody knows when they're going to happen and which makes sense, you know, when you're talking about bodies, you know, have never been found. Avalanches are coming in left and right. Yeah, you have no idea where anybody is. So... The big question here, though, is why are so many bodies left on the mountain? Like, and what are the reasons for this? Yeah. And I think once you learn the scope of how difficult it is to climb the mountain, then you better understand how difficult it is to bring a body back down from it. It actually requires a strategized team maneuver, and it can take up to six to eight Sherpas. It's incredibly expensive. So we talked about how it can be anywhere from thirty dollars to $100,000 just to scale the mountain. But you're also looking at that kind of money, if not more, to bring someone uh, who has fallen back down from it. And mm -hmm. it's a lot of strategy and planning. And then you also have to hope that the conditions, like you're saying, you know, there can be avalanches or other inclement weather situations. You have to hope that these conditions are still welcoming enough to bring this incapacitated person down from the mountain. Yeah. Aang Tashering Sherpa, chairman and founder of Kathmandu Asian Trekking and president of the Nepal Mountaineering Association, told the BBC that even picking up a candy wrapper high up on a mountain is a lot of effort because it's totally frozen and you have to dig around it. Yep. And a body weighs a lot more than a candy wrapper does. Um, a dead body that normally weighs 80 kilograms might weigh 150 kilograms when it's frozen and dug out with the surrounding ice attached. Um, and then bodies also become frozen and embedded into the mountainside. So there's this extensive detachment process done by a team of diggers. And that that's like becomes a whole thing because you effectively have to bring up like 
gear and what's required and spend the time to do this. It's incredibly taxing. And in some situations, the body will get moved unintentionally by natural weather events or changes in the mountain. Because of this, they might get lost or wind up in spots that make them difficult to retrieve, like we were saying earlier. And on a really morbid note, usually, you know, when an animal or a person dies and its body is left as is, it decomposes. But in the excruciatingly cold weather on the mountain, the microorganisms that are responsible for the decomposition of the body can't survive, which causes the body to remain intact and hold its shape for even years. Mm -hmm. Which is why you see these, these corpses in the mountain that look relatively unchanged. Yes. I looked at way too many pictures of them and it's awful. Yeah. And that's where I think the, the whole like issue of respect for these fallen climbers comes into place because, you know, obviously, like we've mentioned earlier, people do have to assume that there is a fatal risk in doing this climb and you might not make it down. Um, mm -hmm. But then at the same time, these are still people's family and friends um, that get used even as, you know, landmarks, which we'll get to in a little bit. But in some cases, families ask that their, that their loved ones, instead of being removed from the mountain entirely, uh, they get moved out of sight uh, from the trails and, and the natural climbing paths just out of respect. And some climbers, though, <laughs> they kind of knowing that this is the risk, they assume it. And they specifically request to be left on Everest if if a fatality happens. And a lot of people kind of attribute this to like the sea travelers of yore sort of, you know, being being buried or left at sea, um, like kind of a a rite of passage of like, I'm a climber. This is my passion. If I you know, if that's what it comes to, I I welcome it sort of thing. The oldest traceable body on Everest is considered to be that of George Mallory, an English mountaineer who was part of the first British expedition up the mountain in the early 1920s. He and his partner, Andrew Irving, were last seen about 800 feet from the summit before disappearing. There was an expedition in 1999 that set out to find his remains, and they did, actually, and they were pretty well preserved. Injuries sustained on his body and circumstantial evidence gives us some idea as to what happened to him, namely that he slipped, fell, and conked himself in the forehead with his own ice axe, which is a pretty awful way <sighs> to, uh, to you know, perish on this mountain. It's I know. Pretty horrible accident. We still don't know if Mallory and Irvine reached the summit before their fatal accident, but some in the field believe that Mallory actually did. They also think that he left a photo of his wife at the summit because it wasn't on his body yeah, when it was found. I guess that's the thing where he was known to always have this this photo of his wife in his wallet or somewhere on his person. And so when they found him and they didn't find the photo, they were like, oh, he must have made it to the summit and then put his wife's photo up there as like a, you know, a ceremonial thing. So that's why they were they made that connection there. Yeah. We don't know much about Irvine because his body's still unlocated. But on an eerie note, Mallory and Irvine had a camera with them to record the historic event, but it was not found among any of their belongings is believed to still actually be up there with Irvine, whose body was never found. Which, man, it would be wild to find that camera in I that know, film. I know. I would. Yes. I. That would be incredible to find that footage. Uh, it's important to note that if we're really talking about the first known casualties on Everest, we have to talk about the Sherpa people. 
including seven Sherpas who were part of these early British expeditions with uh, Mallory and Irvine. And the loss of Sherpa lives on Everest is a big part of this glaring example in the history of exploitation and erasure of the Sherpa people. And there have been some pretty atrocious misdeeds by foreign and Western climbers who hire the Sherpa and do not treat them well. And, and I mean, beyond well, uh, Jess, I think you've got some info on something that happened, right? No. Yeah. One of the worst incidents was in May, 2019, recently when a group of Ukrainian climbers left Sherpa lamb Babu to die on Mount Everest. Yeah, I guess there was this publicity stunt that was organized by Ask FM, where this group of climbers would scale Everest and leave $50,000 worth of the company's cryptocurrency at the top. And of course, stuff went wrong. And they, I think they just left the Sherpas up there too. Yeah, like not it's, okay. it's pretty, you know, I don't want to bring us down in <laughs> this already it's pretty somber episode. Um, but yeah, the it, it is pretty horrible throughout history how the Sherpa people have been treated. Absolutely. And even though the job of the Sherpa is incredibly dangerous and even, you know, self-sacrificial at times, many feel like they have no better options to provide for themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they feel like the, that climbing is their only livelihood and option, especially because they're so remote and just their position and and everything. However, there have been strides made to help the Sherpa people. Um, the Himalayan Trust, which was established by Sir Edmund Hillary, is this nonprofit org that helps improve the livelihood of the Everest inhabitants. But still, Sherpas to this day are involved in four times as many accidents as Westerners. And part of that is kind of the, the carelessness with which their lives are treated. You know, it's, it's something to consider because I do think that we think a lot about the Western lives that are lost on the mountain mm-hmm. and don't think about the native people there. Absolutely. And I didn't even know that, you know, all of these people that are going to climb Mount Everest, I didn't even know about the Sherpas. And now all I want to do is care for them and make sure that they're okay. I mean. Yeah. And and of course, like, I, it's weird how, like, sometimes the Simpsons can kind of be this very, this very honest and exposing, you know, thing. And I, I think, I think there's an episode of the Simpsons where Homer is trying to climb Everest or something. Oh, geez. And he's basically bundled in a sleeping bag and there are just Sherpa that are pulling him during the night up the mountain. And like, we can laugh and say, oh yeah, that's old Homer, you know, Mm -hmm. but it is kind of like a really sad you know, s- truth. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so again, and continuing in this episode, which is, again, a pretty dark episode, but... Hey, 30 morbid minutes, baby. <laughs> it is 30 morbid minutes. <laughs> Everest is one of the only places in the world where kind of, you know, walking past exposed remains has, in a weird way, been, in morbid way, been like to stigmatized and normalized mm-hmm. and even integrated into navigating the mountain. Mm-hmm. And some of the older bodies there have started serving as markers to ascending climbers, one of the most infamous being known online as Green Boots, the body to be, to be believed of uh, Soang Paljor, an Indian climber who died on Everest in 1996. And climbers ascending on the north side will pass his body in a limestone cave. Yeah. Naturally, there's a ton of critical discourse about the use of deceased hikers as markers, understandably so. Um, the process of dehumanizing the climbers and is a tragic, constant reminder to the families they left behind. 
Peljor's brother was extremely upset to discover the image of his sibling circulating in 2011 and the nickname Green Boots and felt helpless not being able to properly put his brother's remains to rest. I cannot imagine. Yeah. And and there have been some successful removals and repositions on Everest, including the body of Gautam Ghosh, a 50-year-old police officer from Calcutta who was part of this fatal eight-person climbing expedition. Um, Gautam and his climbing partners, uh, there were four of them, and then they came with four guides. They had come from India with this dream of climbing Everest, and they'd saved their salaries and sold their possessions to do it. And then his body was recovered a year following their fatal climb. And uh, his widow, Chandana, she had refused to accept his death um, until his body was found. And then she was finally able to get some closure there. So, yeah, it's 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 again, we've mentioned it. I think we've said it a few times now, but people take this risk and you know that you're climbing this mountain that is so infamous for death and fatality. But there are still people that come out affected mm-hmm. yeah. by it. Yeah. Stories like Gautam's serve as a bleak reminder of mortality and the dangers of the expedition. And Paul Pottinger, a Seattle doctor who passed Gautam and his team on Everest, was interviewed by the New York Times. And they asked him how he would feel had their places been reversed. And he said, my family and I would never mount a recovery expedition if I had died that day. But if I had died and photos of my body were taken up there, my family would support their publication if it helped to convince others not to attempt the mountain without proper preparation, resources, and respect for the expertise of the guides. Yeah, I guess that's like one pet perspective to have and mm-hmm. way to look at it, mm-hmm. I suppose. Yeah. It's, no, <laughs> it's like yeah. I feel like people already they're going to so much so many lengths to climb this mountain. So mm-hmm. I don't know if that's much of a deterrent at this point. Yeah. In 2010, there was a, an amateur climber from Belgium named Geert van Herk, who was ascending Everest's north side. And then he found this downed climber. And this is kind of grisly. But, um, you know, he kind of bent down to examine this person and see if they were okay. And he realized that the man was deceased and that someone had put a plastic bag over his face to just protect his face from the elements. Mm. And that's when Van Herc was like, I'm done. I this is not worth it. Mm -hmm. He said he just didn't. He said it just completely affected his motivation and he just didn't feel any, you know, it didn't feel right to climb any further and celebrate summiting, you know, because he just he thought of himself in that position mm-hmm. and he could have made it to the top, but he turned around and he's probably one of the exceptions to people doing this. Yeah. I I don't know if I've ever told you this story, Jess, but I was in Kauai, like in Hawaii mm-hmm. and I was climbing, hiking the Nepali coast, which is not at all a harrowing hike, like mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it's it's not like an Everest by any means. There's there's little to no elevation. However, it is it is coastal. And the day that I did it, it was so slippery. The ground was just covered in mud for the entire hike. And there are tons of rocks. And I I had to have a walking stick. Otherwise, I would have totally wiped out. And I saw countless people who were covered head to toe in mud oh. um, because, <laughs> because they had they had fallen and. I was really worried. I'm like, if I fall and I hurt myself, I'm kind of screwed out here. Yeah. 
And there's this part that you get to of the hike where you come to a little like coastal inlet. And there's a sign there that says like, absolutely no swimming, swim at your own risk. It's fatal to swim here because of the riptide and the waves and everything. Uh, yeah, no. And there's a makeshift sign there. And like, I'm just, I'm a tourist, you know, I'm doing this trail with my friends and it's a beautiful day. And I, I, there are tons of people doing it and it's, we're all having a great time. But there's this makeshift sign there and it says, you know, deaths this year. And there were, I think I counted like 80 notches on it or oh, something geez. of people that had not listened to the signs and had gone swimming in the water. And, <sighs> you know, I mean, I hope that a part of me was like, well, maybe they just put this up here to scare tourists yeah. <laughs> into not doing that. But it was really like sobering to see that. Impactful, clearly. It, just to, yeah. yeah. And, you know, you say that um, Van Herc is probably a, the exception. I wonder if there's more because, you know, like we were saying, there's just so many bodies up there. There's green boots and other ones that like, for me, I know that the, the first, even just the first body, to, you know, alone more than that, I'd be like, and I'm out, you know? Yeah. Like my want to climb Mount Everest. Yes. It's an, it's an, incredible feat to be able to do that. But I guess for me, what matters is is my life. And I know that they are aware of this. I am curious, though, as to why um, I want to like interview some of these people, those that have made it to the summit and their reasoning for it, those that have turned back mid mid mountain. Um, I would just love to to talk to some of them just to get a better understanding. You know, is it yeah. is it ego? Like, I just I just want to know it's that I did it like I, it's gotta be, it could be any number of things mm -hmm. depending on the person too. But I have to feel like you have to have this switch in your brain where you tell yourself, I need to do this. Yep. I need to do this more than anything. Mm -hmm. Or, or you're an adrenaline junkie and you're past the point where, you know, anything can feed this need in you. Mm -hmm. And I also can imagine too, if you've been training for so long, if you've spent so much money, so much of your life that you've committed to this, the thought of not following through with it might be worse than, than in some way you rationalize to yourself yeah. than if something bad happened to you up there. Yeah. Like when George Mallory was asked why, he replied simply because it's there, which is, it's a, it's a great answer. I love it. It's, it's kind just of like, badass. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, why? Well, it's just there because we, yeah, yeah. like we as humans, like I was saying earlier, we're just curious little creatures and it's right there. Why not? Yet, I don't know. It's a part of our earth. We're here. I'm going to look at it and I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And not to make light of anything, but the phrase curiosity killed the cat. Oh, for man. a reason. That's me. I'm way Exists. too curious, which is why I'm on this damn podcast. <laughs> you, I mean, <laughs> yeah, uh, you, no. I would say, Jess, you are, you are a curiosity adrenaline junkie. I am, but I don't think if I was in your shoes and I was near that body of water you were talking about Kauai, like I, I would not do that. I would not go swimming in there. Like, okay, well, let me, uh, no, me neither. Absolutely not. Yeah. Like, I feel like I'm, taking calculated risks. But yes, with my anything with my brain and information, yes, I will go there and learn all the things. But let me ask you a question. No, oh, no. Cur curiosity junkie. Okay. Cur curiosity adrenaline junkie. If you, someone told you that at the, at the bottom of that water was the most incredible thing you've ever seen in your life, 
<laughs> like you'll never see anything like it with that. Or, or if you, if you were in a dark room and at the end of the other end of the room, you couldn't see, but you heard a knock, would you go investigate it? Oh my gosh. Um, would you be able to resist? You gave me two scenarios. I gave you two. Well, one of the answer is no to the other one and yes to the other. Guess which one? Is it yes to the knock? Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, oh. because it's one of those things where it happens around my house anyways. Like I thought that there was someone knocking on my window that night, the other night, and I was like, is this Elise again? <laughs> but I legitimately, I was like, oh, hell no. And I felt there's a hockey stick in our room. I don't know why Devin put it there. And I grabbed the hockey stick and I was super cautious. I didn't put any of the lights on because I'm like, I'm not going to make them think that I'm up. I'm going to let them believe that I'm still sleeping. And so I'm like peering through the window and all this stuff coming to find out it was just my neighbor banging on the door loudly. But I was over there investigating like a like one of mm-hmm. the dumb people in the scary movies. But in regards to your other question about, you know, looking at whatever's underneath the water, I think in that situation, because it's such a it's so much bigger than me. It's one of those like I I didn't know to begin with. I don't know now. I'll just never know. And that's okay, You know, Mm -hmm. I think that one's okay Okay. for not knowing. So I'm somewhere in the middle. I'm very curious. But there are times where I'm like, I know maybe where the line is in some cases, which, you know, people listening could be like, well, the line is don't go look at where the knock is coming from, (laughs) you know, so. (laughs) Well, maybe this is something I'll I'll develop as a recurring bit where I see where we can push your curiosity (laughs) over the edge. What what could tempt you? Okay, okay. Um, I'll come up with different scenarios. Yeah, yeah. So you wouldn't you wouldn't climb Everest. No, I am terrified of heights. Even if somebody picks me up and I'm like three feet off the ground, I am terrified. I think I was dropped as a child. <laughs> no, for real. Like, why would I oh, be scared? No. Yeah, I mean, I, I know I was dropped as a child for other reasons. Hence, like, I'm not okay in the brain sometimes. But <laughs> No, you've got a beautiful brain, a beautiful morbid brain. <laughs> Likewise, Elise. Thank you. Uh, well, yeah, this was a pretty dark and sobering episode. Hopefully it was more maybe informative than entertaining. Yeah, we learned a lot. Definitely learned a lot. And we feel for those that um, have absolutely passed on the mountain and the families as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Talking about things like this helps you gain perspective on your own life, I think. Yeah, 100%. And uh, we'll be continuing on this journey of dark infotainment for the rest of the season, covering everything from... Well, we haven't figured out the whole season yet, but there's <laughs> there's a lot of stuff. I, I mean, we're obviously going to need multiple seasons to get through mm-hmm. everything we want to cover. Oh, yeah. Um, But next week, I think we're talking about obituary bandits and grave robbing. Yeah. I also sent Elise something the other day. I was at a grocery store and I saw the history magazine on secret societies and rituals. Oh, and yeah. I was like, there's tons of things that we're going to talk about. Who knows when? But it's it's gonna be lots of fun. <laughs> yeah, I'm way way into that secret society stuff. Me too. But if you want to know more about Everest, always we're big local library advocates, and if you get that digital card, you can get a bunch of stuff online too. Mm-hmm. And uh, so so go online, go to the library, and read more about Everest. And if you find anything cool or interesting, tweet at us. Yeah, at Elise Williams, at Jessica Vasami, at Thirty Morbid Minutes. We would love to hear any interesting Everest facts that we might not have mentioned today. Yeah. And we're kind of, at least I feel like I'm learning along with everybody listening because a lot of the topics that we're covering, I feel like we know 
bits and pieces about them, or maybe you know more things. Like I loved the sleep paralysis episode is merely because I've gone through it. But that's what I love about this podcast is I'm learning things that I know a little bit about, but I get to learn more about and get into the nitty gritty of it all. So I just feel like we're all on this journey together. Me too. Or it's a subject that, oh, I, I come into it thinking I know about it. And then yep. I realize, oh, no, I did not know about that. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. I was, or I was like, everything I ever knew was completely wrong. You know, so yep. who, do we ever really know anything? I don't for sure. <laughs> we, do, we do not. We definitely do not. <laughs>